just could get back to the way it was in the early church, like Acts 2 kind of thing that, you know, everything, everybody having everything in common and selling their possessions that we just probably wouldn't have all these problems that we have today. Let's just get back to the way it was. Well, we've been studying the book of Galatians, which is probably Paul's earliest letter. Uh, It's written about the events that are happening in the middle part of the book of Acts. So it's definitely an account of the life of the early church. And everything's good, right? There's no controversy. You know, Paul's defending his ministry and just talking about how everything's good. You know, well, there are these, these Judaizers who are trying to teach some false things to the Galatians, but the Galatians, they're good. They don't have any problems, and uh, maybe if they believed some of that, it was just a little misstep, but, and then Paul, you know, talks about them being cursed if they're teaching a false gospel, and then last week, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and we saw that there was, there was some unity there. Uh, Peter and James and John give the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, they're going to go to the ends of the earth on missionary journeys and and preach to the Gentiles, while Peter and James and John are going to stay in Jerusalem and strengthen the church there. So everything's good, right? There's no problems. There's no division. Well, things take a little bit of a surprising turn here in beginning in verse 11. Paul is going to go after Peter in front of a whole group of people because of his actions. Um... And because of the lack of unity that we talked about uh, last week, that unity is suddenly disrupted. I want us to see today in this passage that we are just like Peter and that we need to be reminded of how we do not always walk in step with the truth of the gospel that we claim to believe. We are also quick to turn to substitute saviors and make the gospel Jesus plus something else. But before we dive into this passage, I want to set things up for us in terms of the question. You'll see it on your worship guide there on page 7. You can actually follow along here too if you don't have a Bible. The question is, why did Jesus have to die? James talked about it a little bit with the kids, did a wonderful job. Um, Why did Jesus have to die? I believe that this is essentially the question that Paul is both asking and answering in this passage. I want to give a little plug for a a small book here that some of you may have read before. It's called The Passion of Jesus Christ by John Piper, subtitle 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Um, Speaking of Lent, and, you know, we talked about, it's not about just giving things up. Sometimes it's about actually starting to do something else. Um, This is free online. It's a PDF, 50 50 days. You could do one a day and plus a little bit extra. Um, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. Fantastic little book. And actually, thank you to James for reminding me of this book uh, this week. Why did Jesus have to die? Listen to what John Piper says in the introduction of this book. When all is said and done, the most crucial question is, why? Why did Christ suffer and die? Not why in the sense of cause, But why in the sense of purpose? What did Christ achieve by his passion? Why did he have to suffer so much? What great thing was happening on Calvary for the world? And he goes on to say, infinitely more important than who killed Jesus is the question, 
what did God achieve for sinners like us in sending his son to die? Well, as we read this passage, we want to try and answer this question. And I'm going to do something that I probably wouldn't normally do, but I'm actually going to start at the end of the passage first. We're going to look at verse 21, because I think that's going to help us as we think about answering this question. Galatians 2, verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says here, if I can be right with God by keeping the rules, then Jesus died for nothing. In other words, he died, his death was in vain, or it was for no purpose. But he didn't die in vain. He didn't die for no purpose. So let's pick back up at verse 11, and we'll read through this passage. Galatians two eleven through 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that sets us free. We thank you that we are justified, not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. We pray that this morning as we gather together to hear your word, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would send us out from here to be your ambassadors. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at this passage in two different parts. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14 before the quote, uh, before Paul's words to Peter, and then beginning with Paul's um, quote to Peter through the end of the the chapter. Um, So we're going to be looking at Peter's action and Paul's response. So if you're taking notes, um, the first main point is that we often live in a way that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
and that Jesus died to save us from our sin. We often live in a way that is not in step with the truth of the gospel, and Jesus died to save us from our sin. Before we look here at this section, verses 11 to 14, at Peter's actions in Antioch, we need to remember the larger context of what was going on and the discussions that the church was having about the relationships between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, The historical background for this we find in the book of Acts. There's two different events that happen. Uh, The first one is Cornelius' vision and Peter's vision that happened in Acts 10 and 11. And then the second one is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Uh, There's a little bit of debate between scholars uh, when this event in Galatians 2 here happened in relation to those. I'm going to argue that it happened in between uh, both of them, and you'll see why. Um, The first event is Cornelius and and Peter's visions. Uh, If you remember in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, he's a a Gentile army commander. He's praying and he he sees a vision and he's told to send for Peter. So he sends his guys. They go to get Peter. In the meantime, Peter is up on a rooftop praying. He's hungry. He sees a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. It's full of a whole bunch of animals. And he hears the words, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter kind of starts freaking out because these are a bunch of unclean animals that Jews don't touch. They don't go anywhere near, let alone slaughter them and eat them. Um, So, you know, Peter, being Peter, reminds the Lord, um, Lord, I've never, you know, done this. Don't you know? Um, And God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So, Again, with Peter, I think the Lord wanted to be really clear with him and make sure he got it. So this, this event actually happened three different times. And then the, finally the sheet is taken up into heaven. And then the men arrive from Cornelius. And Peter begins to preach the gospel to Cornelius and his friends and family who are all gathered in this house. Um, and here's the words that, that Peter says to them. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. That's how he starts And then he goes on to tell them about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he concludes with these words. He says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now don't miss the universal emphasis here in Peter's message. The gospel is for all people, regardless of race, nationality, social class, etc., etc. This was a revolutionary message. At this time. Well, then the Holy Spirit falls on all of them and they're baptized. Peter goes back to Jerusalem and the circumcision party, which is almost certainly the same people who, some of the same people who came down here in in Galatians chapter 2, they criticize Peter for eating with uncircumcised men. So Peter recounts the events of the vision to them and what happened at Cornelius' house and he says to them, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And what was the response of those in the circumcision party? It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is a big-time event. This is revolutionary in their thinking. So again, 
I'm going to argue that the, the incident we're reading here about in, in Galatians 2.11, that it most likely takes place after the events that I just described in Acts, 10 and, uh, Acts chapter 10 and 11. And with that in mind, it makes Peter's hypocrisy here and his fearful reaction to the circumcision party that much more concerning. Peter had already faced these guys. He had already defended the truth of the gospel. He had already stood up for that. And then here in Galatians 2, he, he reacts in fear. He reacts in hypocrisy. We're not told exactly why, so we don't know all the details. We know that the consequences, consequences of his actions were very serious. He not only acted hypocritically and went against the message that he had previously proclaimed, but he led others in, the, in that same hypocrisy, Barnabas and other Jews, they followed him in that hypocrisy. And that's why Paul was willing to confront him in front of everyone who was present. So we must understand Paul's opposition to Peter here and his hypocrisy based on this argument. Paul is basically saying, Peter, if you believe that God saved you by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then it's all a gift. You can't claim that gift for yourself or for other Jews and then treat the Gentiles differently by adding on all of these other requirements that God hasn't even required of you to be saved. If it's a free gift, Peter, it's a gift for everyone, regardless of nationality or race or social class. Well, the other major event that's important to remember is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. As we said, this probably took place after the events here in Galatians 2. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to confront the teaching that said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas, they go and they report about the work that God was doing among the Gentiles. And still, even after all of this, still there was some opposition to their message. And then Peter... Peter stands up and reminds them of what God had done. Here's what he says. This is Acts 15, 8 through 11. He says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Peter had had a similar response to the circumcision party who criticized him in Acts 11. But his hypocrisy and his correction by Paul make this statement in Acts 15 that much more significant. Peter sinned, straight up. There's no getting around it. He sinned, he was a hypocrite, and Paul, like a good brother, he called him out on it in front of a whole bunch of people. And it seems, from what we see here, if these things line up historically, it seems that Peter repented and he learned from his sin and that God was glorified in, in the work that, that came about. So what was Peter's sin? Paul tells him that his conduct was not in line, not in step with the truth of the gospel. But how exactly? Listen to Tim Keller's explanation of Peter's sin. Keller writes, 
Peter's sin was basically the sin of nationalism. He insisted that Christians can't be really pleasing to God unless they become Jewish. But nationalism is just one form of legalism. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism always results in pride and fear psychologically and exclusion and strife socially. I want to speak to this issue of nationalism for a little bit. I spent 10 years in a place where nationalism has had a very harmful impact on the church. My message to believers was constantly that they are Christians first and then their nationality or their race or their social status second. And I often talked with them. I said, I know what it's like to be prideful about your nation. I come from the most prideful nation on earth. Trust me, I know what nationalism is about. Now don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful for the privileges and the conveniences that I have living in this, country, in this country. And I'm thankful to be back here. But I'm also concerned with the attitudes and the messages that I've been hearing. Um, I recently just listened to, not last night, but before that, the previous two debates um, on both sides. And we keep hearing people talking about making America great again. Both sides are saying it. Are we as Christians more concerned with making America great again or with walking in a manner that is in step with the truth of the gospel that says nothing is required before coming to Jesus? Now, some of you might know the name Russell Moore. He used to teach at Southern Seminary. He is now the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He recently, on January 14th, wrote a kind of a provocative article in the Washington Post titled, Sorry, the Bible doesn't promise to make America great again. He talks about sermons that appeal to 2 Chronicles 7.14 and promise revival for America if we humble ourselves and we pray and we seek God's face. Listen to what he writes. If nothing else, the question must be asked of this kind of sermon where should we take America back to? Do you mean back to the, area, to the era of the founders? Or back to the 1950s or 1980s? When exactly in America's blip of an existence did everything fall apart? But the fact is, Second Chronicles 7.14 isn't talking about America or national identity or some generic sense of revival. To apply the verse this way is whatever one's political ideology, theological liberalism. God reminded a people who had been exiled, enslaved, and defeated that a rebuilt temple or a displaced nation cannot change who they were. They were God's people and would see the future God has for them. If we don't understand the question of who we are, first and foremost, as the people of God, then we are going to miss this. If we take this text and bypass the people of God, applying it to America in general, or the Bible Belt in particular, where, is he, where he's from, as though our citizenship as Americans or Australians or Albanians is the foundation of the covenant God has made with us, the problem is not just that we are misinterpreting the text. The problem is that we are missing Christ. 
plain and simple, nationalism misses Christ. It confuses our identity. And as Moore points out, we need to understand who we are first and foremost as the people of God. If we identify as Americans first and then Christians second, then we have a problem. Nationalism is not in step with the truth of the gospel. But you know what? Neither is racism or classism or ethnocentrism or sexism or every other ism that we could throw out there. Now, we look around here. Let's be honest, we're not the most diverse church in the area. Um, and I think that might be a, a reflection of the lack of diversity in this part of the state. That's, that's not inherently wrong. Um, it's not, I'm not saying we're doing anything wrong. Um, but I want to speak for a minute uh, to some different groups of people. Um, and I don't, I don't like labels and I don't like splitting people up into to sides or, or groups. But we have words in our vocabulary to, to talk about these things, and I don't know how else to do it besides using the words that we use. And I think this is relevant for, for something I'm about to say. So please hear me. If you don't agree with these words or these categories, I'd love to talk about it. But first, I want to speak to people in what we would call the majority, here at least. White, middle class, etc. What is our mentality toward those who are not like us? Whether we're talking about reaching out to those in our community who are not in the church or about fellowshipping here with each other who are in the church. Do we put up barriers that Jesus died to break down? If so, then we're walking out of step with the truth of the gospel. For those of you who are in the minority, you're not off the hook either. You have a responsibility to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, maybe that means sitting down with a, and having a conversation with a brother or sister who has hurt you with their words or hurt you with their actions. We don't need to be like Paul and call people out in front of the whole church, but the principle is still the same. Please hear what I'm about to say. This is not an us versus them thing. That's the whole point. In Christ, there is no us versus them. There is no majority and minority in Christ. These categories, majority, minority, whatever we want to call them, those categories should fade into the background. But because of the reality of sin, they, they still exist, and we need to be aware of them, and we need to be able to talk about them. But those things don't ultimately shape who we are. I think these things are also um, helpful as we talk about Christianity in America. We're not used to the church or Christians in America having a minority voice. Um, again, back to Russell Moore. He just wrote a book uh, earlier in uh, 2015 called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Listen to the title of chapter two of this book. It's called From Moral Majority to prophetic minority. Now, whether you like it or not, that's the new reality in this country, and we'd better get used to it. 
But hasn't that been the identity of the people of God for 2,000 years? Haven't we always been the prophetic minority? If we don't get the gospel right, that it's Jesus plus nothing else, then the voice that we may still have as the prophetic minority will be reduced to nothing but a faint whisper. So why did Jesus have to die? Back to our question. He died to save us from our sin and to reconcile us to God and to one another. If you've been around here for any length of time, probably one or two services, or looked at the worship guide, you've heard our vision statement. A people together reconciled by grace, and by grace reconciling what is broken. I think this passage so clearly speaks to this truth. I want to read one more quote uh, from John Piper to drive this point home. This is near the end of the book. It's in uh, chapter 44. Again, asking the question, 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. The, the title of this chapter is To Destroy the Hostility Between Races. Um, he mentions here Galatians 2 and Ephesians 2. We don't have time to get into Ephesians 2. I would really encourage you, go home this afternoon and read the second half of Ephesians 2 that talks about Christ breaking down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. It's so applicable uh, to this passage. But let me read this. He says, Jesus died to create a whole new way for races to be reconciled. Ritual and race are not the ground of joyful togetherness. Christ is. He fulfilled the law perfectly. All the aspects of it that separated people ended in him, except one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to build a lasting unity among races by saying that all religions can come together as equally valid. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God sent him into the world as the one and only means of saving sinners and reconciling races forever. If we deny this, we undermine the very foundation of eternal hope and everlasting unity among peoples. By his death on the cross, something cosmic, not parochial, was accomplished. God and man were reconciled. Only as the races find and enjoy this will they love and enjoy each other forever. In overcoming our alienation from God, Christ overcomes it between races. I believe that this is going to be a huge issue moving forward with the church in America. It's been a big issue in our denomination, and I don't think it's something new. It's something that has always been a struggle in the church. We can look right back to this passage. But there's a deeper issue, I think, that is at the root of all these isms. And that's where Paul is going to go with Peter and with us. We're going to be looking at um, Paul's response here to Peter. And the second main point is that we cannot be made right with God through outward obedience of any kind, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There are no substitute saviors. So we see Paul begin to make this argument from the second half of verse 14 all the way down through verse 21. Um, something just to mention real quick. If you read the ESV, um, I'm not sure how all the other translations handle it, but if you read the ESV, they only have quotations on verse 14. Um, 
I believe the quotation should probably go all the way down to the end of verse 21. I think all of these words are words that Paul is speaking to Peter, and that's kind of how we're going to attack it here this morning. Um, so this, this whole section, verse 14 down through 21, we're going to look at it as Paul's direct response to Peter and to his actions that we saw in verse 11 to 13. All right, Paul starts out, Verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's calling Peter out for his hypocrisy. That's pretty clear. Then Paul makes a really interesting statement in verse 15. If we just read this statement without the surrounding context, I think it would be kind of alarming. Paul reminds Peter, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, if you hear those words, it kind of sounds arrogant, right? Sounds like, what's, what's Paul talking about here? Well, the Jews did have special privileges and responsibilities as the people of God. You can go read the beginning of Romans chapter 3 or Romans chapter 9. But Paul reminds Peter here, that their birth among the chosen nation of God's people, the chosen race, it's not enough to save them. There's kind of some irony here in his statement. And then he says in verse 16, so we are not Gentile sinners, Peter, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This verse, this is really the crux of the whole letter of Galatians. Everything hinges on this verse. Paul essentially, he's pulling out the rug from underneath himself and Peter as Jews, and he's pulling out the rug from anyone else who's trying to be justified, trying to be right with God in any way other than faith in Christ. So Paul uses this word justified three times in this one verse. What does this word justified mean? It can mean a few different things in in different contexts, depending on how it's used. But one commentator says, when used as here in Galatians 2, 15 and 16, in the dominant forensic sense, justification may be defined as that gracious act of God whereby on the basis solely of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just, and the latter, the sinner, accepts this benefit with a believing heart. Justification stands over against condemnation. So there's two really important things here from this definition. The first is that God declares the sinner just. We don't actually become just, we don't become righteous, but we are counted righteous. Again, if you're reading the ESV, there should be a little footnote on the word justified. You look down on the bottom, it says counted righteous. It's another way you can translate that. Um, You may have heard the analogy of a courtroom where there's a guilty criminal standing trial and the judge steps down off his bench, takes off his robe, and he goes and he stands in the place of the criminal and he says, not guilty. Now, nothing has actually changed about the criminal. He still committed the crime. He's still guilty of that crime. He still deserves the penalty for the crime. But the judge has not only spoken words and declared him innocent, he's also taken his place. 
Uh, The second thing is that justification is the opposite of condemnation. So if we stick to this courtroom analogy, Paul is telling Peter and the Galatians and us that as we stand before the judge, there is nothing that we can claim. I just thought of, you know, you hear these stories of uh, pro athletes or movie stars who get pulled over and they're like, don't you know who I am? We have no... You know, we stand before God. We can't say, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? There, there's nothing. There's no claim. There's nothing that we can do in order to be justified or counted righteous in God's court of law. We, like Peter, stand guilty before the judge. We are all hypocrites. We all walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. But there is one who obeyed the law perfectly. And it is with him that we are called to identify And that's what Paul does in verses 17 to 21. Verses 17 and 18, they're kind of a little hard to understand. There's some vagueness in the original language, and there's a lot of different theories about how they should be translated. Um, It's likely that Paul's argument here is not only directed at Peter, who wants the Gentiles to observe these certain dietary laws, but also at the Judaizers, who we looked at in in chapter 1, who were wanting the Gentiles to be circumcised. There's a concern by those who want to promote strict adherence to the law that doing away with the law will promote sin. James Boyce, in his commentary, summarizes the argument against Paul as follows. Here's what they would have said. Your doctrine of justification by faith is dangerous, for by eliminating the law, you also eliminate a man's sense of moral responsibility. If a person can be accounted righteous simply by believing that Christ died for him, then why should he bother to keep the law? Or for that matter, why should he bother to live by any standard of morality? There is no need to be good. The result of your doctrine is that men will believe in Christ, but thereafter do as they desire. And then he goes on to talk about Paul's reply. Paul's reply is abrupt. The form of his expression suggests that he was aware of the possibility that a Christian can, and that all Christians do, sin. But this is not the result of the doctrine of justification by faith, and therefore Christ is not responsible for it. Such is sin, as Paul acknowledges indirectly in the next verse, man himself is responsible. And then in verse 18, Paul's saying, if I rebuild the doctrine of salvation by works, the very thing that I was trying to tear down, if I rebuild that, then I prove that I'm a sinner. That's hypocrisy. That's what Peter was doing. By pulling away from the Gentiles, he's attempting to set back up the wall between Jew and Gentile that Christ has already died to tear down. Then Paul goes on in verse 19, saying that he's dead to the law. How then can Paul be dead to the law? He gives the answer in verses 20 and 21. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
I'm dead, Paul says, but I'm alive in Christ. He loved me. He gave himself for me. How could I ever nullify his grace by claiming that righteousness was through the law? So back to our question again. Why did Jesus have to die? He died for a purpose. And what was that purpose? From this passage, we clearly see that it was for our justification so that we would not be condemned. It was because we could not justify ourselves by keeping all of the rules or by turning to substitute saviors. Jesus was condemned for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Now I want, to, I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a minute here. Imagine yourself standing before a crowd of people getting called out for your sin. He's probably embarrassed and ashamed. If you remember Peter, this isn't the first time that he's been publicly called out or that he's been publicly shamed. But that wasn't the end of the story for Peter. It doesn't end there. And it's not the end of the story for us when we sin and walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. Do you see the beauty of what Paul is doing here? It may seem like he's being hard on Peter and that he's going too far, but he's preaching the gospel to him. He's saying, bro, you messed up big time and you caused others to sin along with you. But guess what, Peter? You're not any less accepted by God because you sinned. And you're not any more accepted by God when you do what is right. Your standing with God is not based on your performance. It's based on Christ's finished work on the cross in your place and you receiving that by faith alone. Maybe you're here today and that's the first time you've heard that. Maybe you've, you know, heard about Jesus before, but you've never really thought about why did Jesus come to die? You hear you know, Christians talking about Lent and Easter and resurrection and all these things. Maybe you're looking for all kinds of different things in this world to make your world right. Maybe you're trying to substitute the only Savior who we're talking about here today, Jesus Christ, with substitute saviors, and they're not getting the job done. If you have questions about that, we would love to talk with you. You can talk with me. You can talk with Bruce. You can talk with almost anyone here. Talk with the person who brought you. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time and you've been trying really, really hard on your own to please God by following rules, by following things that you've set up, and you're just simply exhausted. Maybe you've substituted Jesus with some things in, that need to be crucified in your life. Well, again, we talk about Lent, we talk about repentance. It's a good thing to feel sorry for our sin. That's what we've been emphasizing during the service. That's what we're going to be emphasizing over the next several weeks. Repentance is a major part of the Christian life. But being sorry enough is not what saves you. Christ alone saves you. Turn to him in faith as you turn away from your sin. Rest in him alone as you seek forgiveness for the ways you have walked out of step with the gospel. And praise him for the grace that he gives to reconcile you to himself and to go forth and to live reconciled lives for his glory. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the reminder that we are just like Peter, that we do sin. We do walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. We thank you for this picture of how Paul corrected him, how Paul preached the gospel to him and called him back to Christ. We thank you for how he went forth after that and made disciples and built up your church. God, may we be a church that does the same thing, that we go out as people who are forgiven by you, that we go out and call others to be reconciled to you. We thank you for this time and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.